This episode is sponsored by OneTrust. Get your organization to carbon net zero and create a competitive advantage with your ESG and sustainability initiatives. The OneTrust ESG and Sustainability Cloud can help. For more information, please visit OneTrust.com. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, what does it mean to raise the bar on sustainable business? Why ESG data should be a public good? A new startup for circular fashion? And why you should care about quantum computing? We've got your number this week on 350. February 11th, 2022. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. Always so glad to have you with us. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, but thinking about by the time she gets to Phoenix, it's Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hi there. How are you doing, Joel? Oh, I'm doing okay. <laughs> uh, just a busy week, uh, run up to uh, the big event next week. Green Biz 22 starts on Tuesday and uh Wow. I mean, it's it's sort of surreal and very exciting that we're all going to be together again. And when I say we all, I mean, a lot of us. And here's the here's the really interesting part. Uh, I think you know this, Heather, that the registration for Green Biz 22 exceeds that for Green Biz 20, the last live in-person event that we held. Um, and that's really remarkable, given that you know, we're still digging our way out of the pandemic. A number of companies uh, still have travel bans. They can't go to conferences. They can't get on planes. And despite that, uh, we have more people than ever wanting to come to this event. Uh, I mean, it really speaks to where we are in this moment and the, the demand and uh, uh, the desire just to be together. Yeah, I'm really looking forward just to mingling <laughs> and talking to people and, and really thinking about what they need to know from, from the editorial team. I, that's, that's sort of my goal mission for the conference. Our team is just going to spend a lot of time networking and connecting and chatting about, you know, what's on people's minds. So I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. I think, I think a lot of people are going to be doing that. There's some amazing sessions. I'm actually still in the process uh, of just fine tuning the outlines for a bunch of ones I'm doing, but um, I think, that this is going to be one of those conferences where a lot of time is spent outside, huddled around, maybe if it's cold, you know, like those heaters. I hope it's not cold. It was really cold last time we were there, but uh, I haven't checked the weather. Um, got a pack. But uh, anyway, I just I'm really looking forward to just connecting. Yeah. And in that regard, I think it's going to be a little surreal, too, um, because, you know, we're all coming together. I mean, we've all been out and about. It's the first, it's the first time out of the house or anything. But, uh, you know, to be in a, a group of this magnitude, particularly a group that a lot of the, we're going to have, I think, twelve or 1,300 people there, you know, hundreds of them know one another. They, they're, they're 
it's kind of a class reunion, family reunion. If you talk about your chosen family or at least your chosen work family. And I think there's going to be, you know, a lot of, you know, great to see you, but also tentativeness about do we shake hands, hug, bump elbows, bow, curtsy, whatever it is. Um, I think people are going to be you know, just sort of getting used to it. It was just one small example of that. We've had uh, a little email chain going around uh, among a few of us because somebody asked, what do I wear to an event these days? <laughs> you know? um, I was wondering and, the same know, thing myself, actually. <laughs> I liked that question. I was like, yeah, what What do you? What, what is business casual in 2022 and how do I – show up in a way that is, uh, you know, friendly and appropriate and comfortable. And of course, this is, in, you know, in, in the resort in the desert, we're not wearing, always wearing sport coats or, you know, probably too many dresses, but I think it's just going to be weird. Uh, and, and, you know, not bad in a bad way. It's just going to be interesting to see how people react. Um, but give us, before we go on to the next segment here, Heather, what's an example of, of a session that you're doing? that you're particularly excited about? Wow, I'm all over the map. Actually, I I have a couple of really hardcore um, sessions on issues that companies are dealing with. So I'm doing one on water positive strategies. Uh, another one I'm really looking forward to is circular mining, which is what I wrote about for the state of green business and just sort of this whole process of gathering materials from and, and minerals and, and metals and so forth from existing items and how do you put them back into circulation there's just so much going on especially with the automotive industry right now in terms of how how you get better at doing that and then i'm really inspired by a session i'm going to be doing on mentorship so you know strategies for mentorship how does it how do they change in a hybrid work environment when you've got someone that you normally would see in person how do you handle that in virtually um who should be mentored who should be mentor, mentees, who should be mentors, you know, that, that sort of thing. So, and I've, I haven't actually, I'm really looking forward to that one. And it's, it's been a number of women from the women in sustainability leadership, um, alumni group. So super, super excited. What about you, Joel? Those are, those are, uh, I'm of course, um, doing one main stage session with, uh, the UN global compact, uh, CEO and executive director, Sanda Ojambo. Um, really excited about that. I talked to her last year, but you got quite a bit going on. What's what's on your plate? Well, actually, not as much as you do, I think, in terms of sessions. I mean, um, well, I guess, you know, in two words, uh, what I'm looking forward to, Paul Pullman. Uh, Paul, as most people know, is former CEO chairman of Unilever. Before that, Procter & Gamble. And since then, since he retired a few years ago, he has been actively engaged as a, as a way understatement uh, in terms of uh, his activities with uh, – COP in the UN and the UN Global Compact and the World Business Council for Sustainable Development and wrote a book with uh, our friend Andrew Winston called Net Positive. Uh, we're going to be doing a main stage conversation and then a breakout looking at uh, a number of issues. What does it mean to be net, be net positive? But, but also, what does it take to manage from the middle? In other words, most uh, corporate sustainability people are, you know, they're basically middle management. A few are up in the C-suite, but not that many, uh, and and how do you lead from the middle in a company in uh, in sustainability in particular? And so, 
Uh, I'm looking forward to having that conversation and uh, lots more. I don't want to, you don't have to get into too much of it, but um, there will be a live stream uh, for, for the main stage events. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll link to that on the page for this episode. Uh, you probably, I'm sure, guess, uh, I'm guessing you can find it on the homepage, greenbiz.com. But join us uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday for the plenary sessions. They're each 90 minutes long and you can uh, see the uh, Heather's conversation uh, with Sando Ujama, mine with Paul Pullman, and lots, lots more. So that's what's going on next week. But let's dip back into the Week in Review. So let's start with your piece from this week, Joel. You asked this wonderful question, (laughs) what does it mean to raise the bar on sustainable business? And this is something we've been talking about a lot within our own organization in every, I think, team, you know, from an editorial perspective, as, as everyone listening has heard me probably kvetch about before, we get a lot of incoming pitches and a lot of really um, exciting announcements from companies about their commitments of all natures, DEI commitments, net zero, water strategy, like just all over the map. And it's really hard to figure out which ones are, you know, the ones that we should really latch on to and and celebrate and, and that really show leadership. And in this column, you really talk about the sorts of questions that companies really should start asking themselves, and actually probably us too, as, as the ones reporting on those companies. I just was curious how, what kind of led to this, this particular uh, thought exercise on your part, and what do you hope to see out of it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, this really dates to back uh, almost 20 years to a question I started asking in the early 2000s. Uh, I guess it's been a, been to 20 years. A very very simple, basic question that when it comes to sustainable business, how good is good enough? Uh, in other words, not, not you know, when I say good enough, it sounds like a somewhat low bar, but I'm actually talking about what does it mean to be seen as basically a company that's engaged, that that it, that is taking these issues seriously, that's that's truly thinking about them in a holistic way. Uh, there's no real standard for that. I mean, there's a bunch of leadership standards like the CDP A-list and, and the, the Just 100, the Corporate Knights Global 100, things like that, Dow Jones, Sustainability Indices. But we don't really have a good way of, of, of looking at that. And, and here we are in this moment. We just really need to be stepping things up and we can no longer celebrate incrementalism. We need companies to be fully engaged. So how does one, a reasonable person, look at a company and say, yeah, they're, they're doing the right things. They may not be the best of the lot, but they're certainly uh, you know, in the mix and, and someone that we see taking this seriously. And as you said, uh, Heather, the, you know, this goes to the people you know, we put on stage or, or even allowed to sponsor our events. Uh, we're not making any moves on that yet, but we're thinking about sh- you know, what role should we as a media and events company have in helping nudge or push or shove our uh, community to do to go further faster. So 
I mean, that's out of the context. And, and back then in the early 2000s, as I was, you know, doing my usual speechifying kinds of things at conferences, company events, talking about this, how good is good enough. I, I came up with a, sort of a, a few questions, but I, I subsequently refined them for this column. And, um, you know, sort of, I guess the, the, the upshot of this is that the answer to figuring out what's a, you know, a good company may not be in parsing reams and reams of data. It may be rather in asking some good questions and that are just allow us to think about, you know, is this company really doing the right thing? And so I, I proposed five questions and that's really the gist of this column. And it's really as a provocation to the green biz community saying, what do you think? Uh, you know, what's, what's missing? What, what about this approach? And gotten some really, really, really great comments, which I'll probably turn into another column down the line. I love number four. <laughs> Your question number four, what is it saying? Because <laughs> this is so this is, this is, I guess this is what, of course, we hear on the editorial side so much, um, but the accountability factor. Um, and, and by the way, the accountability factor, not just to the journalists or media or whatever, but to owners, employees, customers, suppliers, any stakeholder that really has an interest in the company. Um, I think that for me is like one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately. And um, thank you just for raising the question. I hope that we, yeah, I really, I'm really looking forward to seeing where we go as an organization with this, because I feel like you know, I, I like celebrating, and you know me, I'm, I, I'm a, a pretty Pollyannish kind of person. <laughs> I see, I like the good, I like the positive. I like celebrating, I like celebrating progress and I like celebrating it in detail, right? So that others can learn from it. And I feel like this could help with our service journalism is something that I really would love to see us doing more of and the extent to which we can really celebrate in detail the ones that are raising that bar, I think is super important. Yeah, and, and I really uh, encourage and look forward to uh, everybody's comments weighing in on this of, of how, how do you think about a company, you know, in terms of whether it is, uh, it's, if not a leader, at least it's, uh, it's directionally correct and, and on the case and doing, you know, a reasonable, reasonably good company. So I think that's a conversation that's never going to end because uh, the state of the bar keeps rising uh, as as things uh, a few, that a few years ago seemed kind of bold and audacious now are, are table stakes, um, like being a net zero emissions company. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, more to come on this. This is, uh, I think, a pretty interesting topic. But let's move on to another area that's uh, big for us here at GreenBiz Group, uh, circular economy. And uh, our colleague, uh, Deanna Anderson, a senior editor, uh, profiled a company called Recircled. Great name. Uh, Heather, what does it do? So Recircled is a uh, organization that helps fashion companies. So that one of their high, very high profile customers is Timberland. Uh, they also work with Merrill um, and other, uh, I think it's 50, 50 other brands, um, although they're not saying exactly who. But the uh, focus of this particular piece was to really dig into how Recircled has come up. They're, they're a couple years old, um, although the, the founder, the CEO, uh, Scott Coleman, has a lot of experience in the retail apparel industry. And he really just wanted to get into this mindset of how do you 
how do you re reimagine fashion so that it can be circular? And he, for him, it's it's a lot to do with the design. So what he's doing with uh, Timberland is 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 pretty, you know, I mean, like in some extent, um, to some extent, pretty pretty much what you've heard about, like helping them take back the products, taking them apart, figuring out how to reuse the, the fibers. Um, you know, what what where does this go? Where does that go? How do you then reincorporate these in products? And there's just, just a number. Of, I mean, it's a really good and thoughtful Q and A um, that gets into detail about some of the processes that they're using. Uh, I love, there were a couple of points that he made that I, I really appreciated, which is he, uh, you know, we, we, we kind of, we, we have mixed feelings, I think, on pilots. <laughs> some, some of the folks, some of the analysts at Greenbiz um, appreciate them, some of them don't. He, he talks about basically saying, okay, yeah, we know that we're, don't, don't think of this as a pilot. Uh, think of this as, a, as the first part of your roadmap. Right, so he's he really uh, uh, talks about how he's worked with Timberland to, to set in place for each brand and each sort of line, you know, the milestones, where you want to go from here, moving beyond pilots into a roadmap. So I, I appreciated that, you know, really a focus on building a process um, of how to recycle these items. The other thing that I found fascinating was he there. There's a um, I'm not sure if I'm going to get the pronunciation of the the town right, but Prato, Prato, Italy. Um, so Recircled has their main U.S. plant in Sydney, Nebraska. Sydney, Nebraska. Think about that minute. It's the 80,000 square foot factory where they're, where they're disassembling clothes and shoes. Um, it's two, it's one of two facilities. Their other, they're doing a lot of work in of Prato, Italy, which I was surprised to learn. Um, first of all, he's, since this fellow has been in the industry for I think about three decades, but he he calls this the center of textile recycling. This community apparently has these this sort of mindset, and they've been working on this for a hundred years, <laughs> at least as, as far as this this um, this interview goes, and and that's his perspective. But he's been working um, with fabric mills in that region on on how to use recycled fabrics, yarns, and so forth for years, and so. I, I just thought that this was fascinating. Like this is one of those places where in Italy, the center of the, like to some people, the fashion universe, um, you know, if these folks are working on it this this actively, that's a really great sign for me because it's at the center of of influence, right? So I, I, I love that they're doing this there. They're hoping to influence footwear and, um, you know, accessories. And that's sort of uh, the main point. But I just thought that was a great essay, really thoughtful. Um, I want to go to Prato. Are you going to send me there <laughs> next summer? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. great interview. On assignment in the Italian Riviera, it's Heather Clancy. Um, <laughs> yeah, the I, I, I agree that, you know, I like the fact that they want to go beyond pilot. There is this phenomenon uh, called pilot washing where uh, – uh, where yeah, companies say announce a pilot, and that's you know sort of all that they do in that particular topic, and they never really get to scale. And I think it's really important that that happen. And but one of the other things, though, it's not exactly in this piece, but I think that's fascinating here is that the apparel and footwear industry is really light years ahead of most other sectors when it comes to uh, recycling and and circular uh, thinking in terms of their products and where they go. And there's good reason for that. That the apparel industry is. Uh, is is actually one of the more polluting industries out there 
both in terms of emissions, but also uh, waste, uh, you know, as, as clothing gets uh, used uh, all too quickly and, and, and tossed out. But uh, what are the lessons that are learned uh, from companies like Recycle that, that can uh, inure to other sectors? And I think that's really as much as anything is what's critical here is how do we how do we learn uh, and take lessons and logistics uh, ideas and, and all of that and apply them to these kinds of, uh, to other sectors, uh, you know, electronics and, and other kinds of uh, equipment. I think there's just a huge uh, opportunity there and uh, apparel is showing the way. So let's turn to uh, uh, one more story here this week. It's uh, on uh, ESG data and why it should be a public good. I know don't, it's, it sounds it sounds a little geeky. It sounds a little like really you know, you're going to talk about data now. <laughs> but this is a, an essay by uh, by Greg Byer, who's uh, has a firm called Sustainability Arbitrage LLC, and and it's a really it's a provocation uh, about the fact that uh, ESG data, which is uh, already confusing enough and you know there's no real standards for in the sense that uh, you look at the main you know providers sustainalytics uh, msci and others that that create esg uh, ratings environmental social and governance ratings for companies and unlike financial ratings where two different firms can look at the same numbers and come up pretty much with a similar rating even though their methodologies may be a little bit different. This is all over the map when it comes to you know deciding. This goes back to you know figuring out what's a good company and all of that. And and so uh, basically, Greg is saying that if if all of these purveyors of of data you know make them public, uh, including the methodologies, it becomes a public good uh, that everybody can use and make everybody better uh, in terms of the methodologies, in terms of the rigor. Uh, and 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 I think that's that's uh, you know how do we make climate and ESG data open to everyone? And he's saying that this something he calls it full market disclosure and uh, turns an investment edge into a public good. This is just you know one really interesting part of this ESG phenomenon that we've you know sort of uh, uh, found ourselves in. Uh, wouldn't have seen this coming two or three years ago at the level of it that it has. And while ESG data has become quite, uh, you know, sort of, again, table stakes in terms of what a company needs to be reporting and how they're being judged, it's really not that rigorous in, in the sense of, of how it's put together. And so, you know, there, there's just, for example, get super geeky here, there's something called imputation, which is a, where your a ratings company is imputing their their making some extrapolation or assessment of what a company's uh, emissions on in some particular aspect might be, you know, should probably be given its size, sector, geography, business model, and other things. Um, but it's not real data. It's just sort of a, it's a guesstimate. And that's not always clear to the user of this data that that's where the, these ratings come from or that was baked into the rating. So I like his idea, and it's 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 a long shot to be sure, but most provocations are of how does this uh, how do we bring radical disclosure, radical transparency to to the world? That's my term, not his. Um, uh, in terms of seeing, okay, well, this is what the rating is, but this is what they're actually talking about in the rating. Yeah, this idea of full market disclosure, <laughs> which um, you know that's the sort of 
term that he's been using to, to discuss this. It's almost like the open source software movement that I wrote about, oh gosh, now more than a decade ago. Yeah. Um, but I think part of the part of the other thread here is that not only would everyone have to disclose it, but everyone could have access to it, right? So, so right now, um, you know, if you, if you don't have these subscriptions, you kind of like beholden to figuring out like, where what does the data really say? And so part of what he's suggesting is to make all that data completely open and um, available so that journalists could use it on, in the, on a daily basis to really, you know, kind of like, <laughs> just report like you would on the stock market. It, this is what the data says today, you know, like, and, and just to be able to make, you know, no questions, no, no doubt about, you know, where it's moving and um, the numbers don't lie kind of thing. So it, it is a, it is a wonderful provocation. Yeah. Where is it going to go? Who knows? Um, but I love the idea. And I know he actually, I think he actually submitted the paper to the SEC, correct? I mean, I, I'm looking here. Yeah. And then he actually does uh, call on that that open source wor word L Linux Linux ESG, <laughs> which but for those of you who aren't as geeky as I am, Linux the the uh, open source software that uh, really does actually drive a lot of financial systems, and that's actually an interesting connection because that is what a lot of these systems run on, and that's the principle by which they are um, now a lot of them are now running. So. There is a little bit of a precedent there for, for being more open as far as, as data goes. Who knows? In 2021, funding for startups related to quantum computing, a fundamentally different way of processing information than is possible with traditional computing, doubled to $1.7 billion. The activity surrounding these advances inspired independent investment advisory firm Pathstone to issue a research report considering the potential impact of quantum computing across a range of different scenarios, including those related to ESG investing and climate action. Joining me to chat about the possibilities is Erica Karp, Executive Managing Director and Chief Impact Officer at Pathstone. Hi, Erica. It's great to see you. Hi, Heather. It's good to be here. So I have to start with how do you define quantum computing? What is this mysterious thing? Okay, so quantum computing is a type of you know processing power computing that's based off quantum physics. And this morning I woke up thinking about quantum physics, which is absolutely absurd because I have no idea what it is. Um, what, what I would offer is that it's more important for investors to know uh, what quantum computing can do rather than what it actually is. But at the same time, let's go back a little bit. Um, so quantum computing, there's a few terms that, you know, uh, that we need to know of, again, not in detail, um, but there's something called uh, superposition, quantum superposition. And basically in English, uh, it's my understanding that that's simply, well, not simply, but that means that um, a molecule, um, a particle can exist in, in multiple states simultaneously. And again, I know that sounds bizarre, but that's what uh, superposition means. 
Um, and then, and, and by the way, if you think about, um, you know, flipping a coin, it's either heads or it's tails. When we talk about superposition, it's about the spin, right, of the, the coin. It's about the spin. And so arguably it can exist in multiple states um, with infinitely small changes of position at the same time. And of course, we view it as heads or tails. So that's superposition, a concept that we can at least, you know, be able to, you know, think about a little bit. Then there's a concept called quantum entanglement. Now, this is what Einstein referred to as spooky action at a distance. So Einstein himself didn't seem to understand quantum physics and admitted it readily. So this is spooky stuff, but basically what it means is that two particles or sets of particles can affect each other, can impact each other, even if they're a thousand miles from each other and shouldn't have any relationship at all, but they do. And that's, you know, spooky. So that's quantum entanglement. And those are the two kind of quantum physics things that we might want to think about a little bit, uh, although your brain potentially could explode if you do it too much. Then when it comes to moving to quantum computing, which is based on quantum physics, there's a concept, now we're getting more towards reality and what we can do, but there's a concept called quantum supremacy. And this is where companies, in fact, I think Google was the first, but this is where um, Google or whoever else or IBM can show that using quantum computing, we can solve complex uh, problems uh, where traditional computers just can't do it, at least in a reasonable time. So it might take a million years uh, for a traditional computer uh, to solve something that a quantum computer can you know, solve in a few seconds. So that's quantum supremacy. And that makes, you know, everybody sound cool. So that's what the experimentation is, you know, going for. That, that's kind of the, uh, hopefully, a English definition of quantum computing. Well, I love that it, it really considers all the gray areas too, right? So it's like people typically think of computing as very black and white, but this can take the complexities and the nuances and, and really dive into them in ways that we, we just can't. And it can also has just incredible power too. I think that's the other the element. So, you know, I'm geeking out over this stuff. I'm seeing a lot of um, information about it. You know, for me, I think it's getting a lot of attention, but you have a slightly different thesis um, in, in your world. You know, I why is it getting talked about? I think I mentioned a number before of 1.7 billion in funding. There's a lot of funding. So why is it getting attention and where should it get more attention? Well, first of all, I would suggest that $1.7 billion funding is a drop in the bucket. It's nothing. And so, you know, whether we think about the U.S. or the U.K. or certainly China, who, who is investing 10 times what the U.S. is, you know, um, it's, it's nothing compared to what we need. If we're really going to use quantum computing um, in a way that really transforms you know, sectors, the industries, companies, it transforms the competitive landscape. Um, so yes, there's some money coming. It is investable quantum computing. Um, it's investable uh, in the private markets, 
Um, and there's some, you know, interesting things coming around where, you know, whether it's SoftBank or BlackRock, they are making investments. Um, there's only two uh, publicly traded pure play quantum uh, computing offerings. Uh, neither of them is anywhere near profitability. And there have been, you know, maybe a few hundred million uh, invested. Um, and then um, that's why, because this is so hard to invest in, in the near term, certainly a pure play, you have to decide as an investor, do you want to invest in the development of the technology? That's where it's trickier to do. All right. But there's a lot of actually and it's getting more opportunity to do that, as you pointed out. Or do you want to try to invest with public markets? And our thesis is that you can invest either way, public or private. But when it comes to the public markets, there's much more nuanced opportunity because you're not investing in the technology. You're investing in um, the application, the use cases of the technology. And so in this Pathstone report, um, because we serve, um, uh, you know, uh, foundations and endowments and individuals and families with investment advice in this report, we are finding um, a way to challenge asset managers and find those managers that are really forward thinking and understand how disruptive and transformational uh, this can be. So again, quantum computing is investable. You just have to know what you're doing. So how could it affect um, so the whole, whole world of ESG investing, right, which is going through an incredible transformation right now? How might it impact that? So this is the cool um, with regard to this report. What we did um, is we, we took, again, we just introduced the concept. We talked about whether it's investable. And then we talked about what does it mean for various sectors? And then we went to what does it mean for sustainability and impact, right? And so um, when it comes to it, kind of the high level use cases, you know, we're talking about um, simulations, we're talking about optimization, we're talking about uh, machine learning uh, to optimize algorithms and test different things. We're talking about encryption and cryptography. Um, so those are kind of the big use cases. Now, when you take those use cases and apply them to different industries, travel and transportation, water, healthcare, and, and beyond, then you start to see, okay, what could this mean? And so that's the kind of thinking that went into this. And when we talk about what it could mean, what can it mean for um, access to water, to healthcare? What could it mean for reductions in carbon emissions from various industries? What could it mean for um, uh, materials development, vehicle development, battery efficiency? So, I mean, those are, you know, that, that's the course that we took. How can we align quantum computing with the achievement of the sustainable development goals? Yeah, and your report does a great job of uh, poking into a lot of those areas. I want to ask you about two. The first is transportation, right? Because we know it's really critically important to decarbonize all of the different kinds of, of forms of transportation from trucking to shipping to aviation. How could quantum computing, like, like what are some of the applications then you, you, where you see? You mentioned sort of the high level technologies, but how could this help? Okay, so uh, let's talk about uh, route optimization for airlines. So I don't know if this is true, 
But I got this from a reliable source that a a flight um, going from New York to London. Um, You go to London, there's congestion over the airport, and the flight's going to kind of circle around, you know, a number of times before landing. So I've been told that the fuel consumption during the circling is more than the entire flight uh, across the sea. So, yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting and telling. But the point is, if we're trying to take all the factors relating to um, uh, routing, and we think about, obviously, the weather, you think about passenger behavior and delays, you think about uh, the work staff, you know, the staffing, you think about other airlines and their routes, you think about a million different variables, right, that, you know, computers can, can look at. But in terms of optimizing the routing based on zillions of variables, you know, doing that with traditional computing, you're going to get a lot of noise and not the actual, you know, data that you might need uh, to reduce fuel emissions. But it will be dramatic, right? And when we think about transportation, I mean, human behavior, you know, chugs out like 30, uh, I think 36 gigatons of carbon each year. Transportation is like 24% of that travel and transportation. It's huge. So if we just look at this industry, um, there's an enormous opportunity for efficiency with quantum computing. And so I will tell you from an investment standpoint, let's say um, Delta is doing all kinds of work and hiring staff that are tech literate and everything else. And let's say, and by the way, I don't know this, but you know, let's say American Airlines isn't doing anything about it. They don't even know anything about quantum computing. And Delta is out there doing partnerships with IBM or whomever. And, you know, one of these companies, Delta, is going to win. So that changes the competitive landscape. And then you throw in the regulatory environment on top of that, and then throw in, you know, fuel efficiency gains on top of that. And then you throw in the development of new fuels and new engines and throw in all the work that, you know, whoever, you know, in aerospace, Lockheed Martin is doing with their partners. This is so big in terms of the analytical um, uh, computational firepower. Um, So that's why that's an example of why this is so big. And the same when we think about cities, how do cars move? How do buses move? How do subways move? Are they synced up? When a city wants to do a big infrastructure product, how do you time doing that infrastructure power without destroying productivity as much as you might want to? So public transportation, water systems, you name it, it can be optimized with quantum computing. So one last thing I want you to uh think about for me um, is this link between quantum computing and the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, because you broadly referred to that a moment ago. Um, Take that one level up then, you know, is there is there an area we know that this is a decade of action, we're now two years in, (laughs) probably haven't really done that much. Um, Where could this help with the SDGs? Um, Pretty much every one of the Sustainable Development Goals is touched, our aspirations are touched by quantum computing. So I mentioned the idea of energy uses and fuel efficiency in the context of travel and transportation. 
So offering a clean environment, you know, addressing climate change, huge when it comes to fuel efficient efficiency. Let's go to water. All right. So access to clean water and sanitation, you know, this will be huge. And we have some issues in the water industry. Uh, Matt Sheldon from from KBI um, articulated that really well. Um, in water infrastructure, the tech literacy and age and education of the workforce is not where it needs to be. Right. And so we need help in the labor markets in terms of you know, getting there. And when we think about, um, you know, decision management tools for water, which pipe do you replace first, right? How uh, vulnerable is a pipe from bursting? Is the pipe under a school or is it under a field, right? How fast are the corrosion elements coming on? Quantum computing can help us with all of that. So, you know, SDG uh, 6, clean water and sanitation, right? We're absolutely touching that with quantum computing as we educate the workforce and, and, and figure out how to route water. So it's about affordability, it's about access, and that's globally, right? And then um, let's go to healthcare if we wanna talk about you know, another one of the SDGs. Think about drug development, think about personalized medicine, um, the ability to do much more efficient uh, diagnoses. All of this is, again, more, more compelling with quantum computing. And again, that affects us globally. It affects hunger. It affects poverty. Uh, we're seeing collaborations, right? That's SDG. I think that's 17, right? <laughs> you got so, me on that one. Yeah, 17. And, and so collaborations, this is where you see you know, Google and IBM and all these companies, you know, doing collaborations. And then uh, which one of my favorites is SDG, like number 16, I think, world peace, right? World peace comes when when people start, stop competing with each other for basic needs. World peace comes when we learn to love our, um, uh, our children, and the next generation and each other, and it's about respect, right? So um, you see, I'm, I'm pretty excited about this. I think this. you're pretty excited about this. Thank yeah. you. Well, thanks yeah. <laughs> thanks for geeking out with me a bit today uh, about quantum computing. It's a pleasure, Heather. I'm happy to be here anytime. You just heard from Erica Karp, Executive Managing Director and Chief Impact Officer at Pathstone, which just published a great report on quantum computing, which will be linked here in the podcast run list. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters. A great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We welcome your comments, your questions, and tips. Just hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. And Heather and I will be back next week from Scottsdale, Arizona, and GreenBiz 22 with another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until then, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. This episode is sponsored by One Trust. 
get your organization to carbon net zero and create a competitive advantage with your ESG and sustainability initiatives. The One Trust ESG and Sustainability Cloud can help. For more information, please visit onetrust.com.